Let's keep worshiping Christ together and behold that wondrous mystery in his word as we look to John chapter 7. John 7, this morning we'll be studying verses 25 to 36. If you're a guest with us today, you can find that on page 893. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we've provided some Bibles in the seat back in front of you. We'd love for you to follow along. Page 893 in the Pew Bible, John 7, verses 25 to 36. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So, Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? What do Americans think about God, the Bible, Jesus Christ? Ligonier, nonprofit ministry dedicated to theological research, on a biannual basis, conducts a survey to find out exactly what Americans do believe. It's interesting to see the state of America's theological health, especially a country that was in many ways uh, founded as one nation under God. In its most recent survey, taken in 2020, just uh, about the same time as the COVID pandemic was beginning to take off, Americans were asked uh, to either agree or disagree with the following statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. You get what's being communicated here. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. The findings among those who, again, 
or here in the United States. This isn't people who claim to be Christians. It's just anybody, everybody out there. 52% agree, 36% disagree. The rest just weren't sure. So stats can sometimes get confusing. Let's just make it really simple. One out of every two people in the United States are convinced that Jesus is not God, although he was a great teacher. Does that make sense? So one out of every two. It's kind of hard to visualize, but that's roughly the same amount of people as there are men that, like, that stat would be, like, true of the ratio between men and women. <laughs> so if, if you're If you see other people that are male, that's a lot of people. Just look around the room. There's a lot of men in the room. When you go out in society, it would be just as many people, by ratio, who actually think that Jesus is not God in the United States. Now, here's what's even more fascinating. I know stats can be boring, but this one will blow your mind. Same question, right? When asked to people who claim to be evangelicals, that means that they believe the gospel. They, they would, I, I hate this term, but they would identify as Christian. One out of three agree that Jesus is a good teacher, but not God. I, I don't even know how, how that that happens, but the, the term evangelical is actually a little more, bro- I mean, narrow than the word Christian. And again, um, let's not get blind to stats. One out of every three, what does that look like? Just trying to find some parallel research, something that you would readily be able to see. I think um, ages 15 and older, one out of every three people are single. So I want you to imagine as many singles as you know, that's how many people there are who claim to be Christians who don't believe that Jesus is actually God. It's a stunning reality. And yet this is the essence of the gospel. It is the most basic confession of the Christian faith. We just heard it in baptism. For 2,000 years, the church has been asking people before they baptize, do you confess Jesus as Lord? By Lord, we mean God. Master, owner, ruler, boss of the universe. They say, yes, they get baptized. And yet, one out of three who claim to be Christians do not confess that. And half of all people you know don't believe that either. What are we supposed to do about that? Is that our problem? I mean, is there anything that that we need to be doing individually? Just think about it. Who, Who is it that you know that needs to hear this, that needs to be corrected on this, that needs to be informed of this or persuaded of this? Assuming that you know of someone, I'd ask this, how would you persuade them? Would you even know what to say? Do you just hope that lightning strikes? Like the the idea and it just automatically shows up in their mind? Or would you actually be able to take God's word and help them see, oh, Jesus is, yes, he's a great teacher, but he's also God. 
What do we do about it as a church, especially when we consider the fact that so many people who are claiming to be Christians would not actually call Christ Lord and God? The question is, do we not only believe this, but can we defend this? Does it even matter? I think the text today would argue that it does. It does matter. And it will help you know how to respond. In this little passage that would be easy to overlook, we're going to see that Jesus is continuing to clarify who he is as the Christ. And one of the things that he will not relent on is his divine identity. I like the way that uh, this whole chapter 7 and 8 together actually come together. It's very fascinating because it's just a bunch of questions and confusion about Jesus. I mean, even in the passage that we read, I think there's seven or eight different questions asked in those few verses. Like, it's very different than the rest of John. Like, in the rest of John so far, there's been like, some opposition to Jesus, some questions about Jesus, but it's kind of a sprinkled in there. Here, it's nothing but conflict and opposition. In fact, it led uh, one teacher and scholar to title these two chapters, Jesus in the Lion's Den. You remember the old story about Daniel being thrown into the lion's den, expecting at that point for him to be devoured to pieces, and yet God delivered him despite the odds. Jesus in ascending to Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles at this particular time is stepping into the lion's den. The people who hate him the most, they are there, they are present, and they are looking for him. And in fact, what Jesus does is actually shows up in such a way that says, bring it on. I mean, you may remember that his brothers wanted him to show up and just do a bunch of miracles and put himself on display, and he's like, no, I'm not going that way. What does he do instead? He goes clandestinely, he goes secretly, covertly, without his horde, without his entourage, and he shows up, and he just starts teaching, and he starts off just teaching general, authoritative, solid stuff that they would agree with. And people were like, wow, this teaching's amazing. And then he turns the intensity up a little bit and says, oh, by the way, this teaching is from the one who sent me. This teaching is from God. I am sent from God. And people were like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> and then Jesus, again, turning the dial up a little more on the intensity, inviting a little more challenge, as we saw last week, is actually going to remind them of the fact that he was the guy that was there less than a year earlier who healed a guy on the Sabbath which was a big no-no because Jesus commanded the guy to take up his bed and walk. And I don't know if you remember that, but it was a public provocation of the Pharisees who said, you can't do any work on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, all right, I'm going to do a very obvious miracle at a very busy time of the year, and then I'm going to hang around the temple and explain myself. And you know what Jesus does in chapter 5? He, in that very context, tells them all, oh, by the way, I'm equal with God. And it says at this point that they wanted to kill him. It's been a few months. They haven't seen him. He's been hanging out in Galilee. And at this very feast, the one that's even more popular than Passover, he shows up and he reminds them, hey, remember the guy that made you so angry about a year ago? It's me. 
And now he publicly embarrasses these guys once more by saying that his teachings from God, they don't have any clue what they're talking about. And the last thing that we saw from him was in verse 24, and it said, exercise right judgment. You guys are off. You don't know what you're doing. Uh, This is the equivalent, friends, of a public spanking. I mean, they're the religious authorities, and he has essentially bent them over his knee and handed it to them publicly. And here's the crazy thing. They just sit there and take it. They don't respond. In fact, the text says over and over, they can't respond. How frustrating. Here's a good question, though. Why would Jesus ever stir the hornet's nest in the first place? Why does he descend into the lion's den? What is he doing in provoking these people? He is forcing a new level of Christological clarity. He wants them to understand who he really is. It is vital. It is life and death. They have one perception of the Messiah, of God's chosen ruler and representative, and he's saying, all right, I'm going to go in and I'm going to do a clarification job so that all know who I really am. There's a misunderstanding of the Messiah, as we noted last week. They misunderstand his timing. They misunderstand his teaching. They misunderstand his task. Well, this is a continuation of it. They're still misunderstanding him, and he's going to clarify two more things about himself that they misunderstand before he goes on the offensive and just says, this is who I really am. Let's get past your confusion. Two more points of clarity regarding the Christ. That's what we're looking at. So what are these other two areas that needed to be clarified for this group that misunderstood the Messiah? The first is none other than his ultimate origin. You'll see that in verses 25 to 31. And the second is his inaccessible destination in verses 32 to 36. Ultimate origin, 25 to 31. Inaccessible destination, verses 32 to 36. Basically, it's where he came from and where he's going. His destination and his origin. And so with this note his ultimate origin in verse 25. Remember, the last thing that we saw was Jesus publicly rebuked them. They don't do anything to respond. And what do the people do? It says in verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said. Now, the people of Jerusalem is a new group. It's not just the random crowds. These are the people who are actually from Jerusalem. Remember, it's tabernacles. It's like Thanksgiving and Christmas wrapped up into a Jewish holiday. I mean, everybody shows up back home for this particular event. So some of them are out-of-towners, but some of them are in-towners. The people of Jerusalem, they know the religious establishment better than anybody. They're the ones who just a few verses earlier were actually saying, we don't need to speak openly about Jesus because we know that the religious leaders might overhear us and we don't want to be on their bad side. These people are the ones who are like, what is going on? Jesus just publicly shamed them And they're not doing anything about it? He must be the Christ. Here he is saying that he's from God. They don't correct him. Therefore, he must be the Christ. Read it. Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be the authorities really know this is the Christ? 
So there's some type of clarity forming in their minds, but notice the confusion in verse 27. They're, they're still not totally convinced. They're conflicted. It says, but we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Well, that's interesting. They're conflicted because there was a popular rabbinic teaching in the day that the Christ would actually come back in such a way that it would be mysterious and sudden, like a bolt out of the blue and just as obvious. I know that most of us are aware of the fact that people were looking for the Messiah to come from the town of Bethlehem, but there was another school of thought. You need to understand, the only thing that was clear to the Jewish mind in the first century is that God was going to send back a chosen ruler and rescuer. But the opinions about what he would be like and how he would come were almost as wide as the sky is high. It is pretty varied. So it would be tempting for you to think, like, what's their problem? I can't believe they don't know that the Messiah comes from Bethlehem. One popular rabbinic strain based on uh, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1, excuse me, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, actually said that the Lord would appear in his temple suddenly, and they thought suddenly meant like immediately, well, like with a flash. In fact, there's actually an instance of this particular view of the Messiah that was even as popular, well, today, some Jews still believe this, but a hundred years later, maybe you've heard of this guy named Justin Martyr. Uh, His last name is Martyr because he was ultimately martyred for his uh, standing up for the faith. But one of his only known works is called um, Justin in a Dialogue with Trypho, a Jew. It's a book probably written around 150 AD, broadly circulated. So here Justin is as a Christian debating this uh, Jewish individual And I want you to note why the Jewish person will actually say that Justin doesn't know the Messiah. I'm here actually uh, quoting from uh, Trypho. He says, We know you're wrong because Christ, if he has indeed been born and exists anywhere, is unknown and does not even know himself and has no power until Elias come to anoint him and make him manifest to all. And you, Christian, Justin, having accepted a groundless report, invent a Christ for yourselves and for his sake, and are inconsiderably perishing. So here's the deal. They're thinking, all right, he was publicly rebuking them and they don't correct him. So that's the evidence on one hand that he may be the Christ. But then on the other hand, they know that this guy's from Nazareth. Listen, they, they know this guy's from Nazareth. He's not from Nazareth. The crazy thing is, they think they even know where he's from physically, and they don't even know that. He was born in Bethlehem. That'll be clarified later. But the point is, they think that they've got him figured out, and therefore they're like, we don't know. Is he really the Messiah? Is he really from God? And this is where things get interesting. Look at verse 28. It says, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught them in the temple. Now, I'd love to give a little color. You know, sometimes we read our Bible in black and white, but there's certain invitations to see this thing in HD in full color. Two things here in particular I just want to point out. The one is the word so, means therefore. In light of what he heard them say, 
in light of their confusion, he's going to say something to the crowd. Here's the second thing, proclaimed. You'd be reading that and you'd be thinking like, oh, proclaimed, talked, spoke, just a bunch of synonyms. No. Uh, The Greek word proclaimed, kradzo, means to cry out in a loud voice to yell, essentially at the top of your lungs. So I'm just trying to imagine, it's like we're talking about Jesus turning up the intensity. At this point, he hears them debating who he is, and I'm not going to do it because I'm already loud enough. But he yells out so that everybody can hear the following words. You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Maybe this is my own like artistic rendering, but I can just see him saying this loud and proud. Like enunciating every single word. He wants them to get it. There is no doubt. He is from the one who sent him. And you're like, well, that's kind of vague. I don't know who the one who sent him is. Read the few verses before. He already defined the one who sent him as God. He says it out loud. There's no denying it. And the crazy thing about this is not only does he claim to be from God... But he also is saying they don't know anything about God. He says, I know him, you don't. Which is ultra insulting for those who claim to be the authorities. Notice they kind of understand where he's from. Jesus said to him, okay, well, you, you know me. You, you get, yeah, I'm from Nazareth. Technically, he was from Nazareth insofar as that was where he left to get to the temple. But that's not where he's ultimately from. It's kind of ironic He says, you're missing the point. It's not about where I'm from geographically. It's about where I originate from eternally. It's not about the space. It's not about the map. It's about the realm. I am sent from God. I have not come here on my own accord. I am not just another guru. I am not just another teacher. I am not just another normal human-born teacher. He is human-born. If people would have wore pants as opposed to robes at that time, he would have put his pants on one leg at a time like everybody else. He is truly human, but he's more than that. He's also truly God, and that's what he's saying here. He who sent me is true. What he's saying is this, is he's the right one. He knows that I'm from him. And he already said in John 5, the way you can know that I came from him is because I do the stuff that only he can do. These miraculous things, the way that he would overcome the natural order. He says, in him you do not know. I know him for for I am come from him and he sent me. The point here, friends, is the eternal origin and the divine authority of Christ. That Jesus is not just a great teacher. By the way, if you ever get asked the survey question, I'm giving you the answer. He's not just a great teacher. He is God. He is from God. He existed before his birth. Now, that is something that is hard for us to fathom, and yet it is a fact. He was truly human, but he was not merely human. I want to quote another Jewish rabbi. 
He's a guy that spent time studying Jesus carefully in that century, and he rightfully concluded via the Spirit of God that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, I'm quoting here, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Notice that. He, he had full right to access to God, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If it sounds familiar, it's Rabbi Paul. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's a fascinating phrase, and there's been a ton of ink sp- spilled on that very clause. But one of the most interesting insights into it in particular is that the thing to be grasped was often used at that time to refer to a windfall, like somebody struck it rich. Now, I'm going to use a modern analogy for something that was really old. But have you ever seen those people step in one of those like um, wind tunnel things with all the cash at the bottom, and then they have to like clutch it and grab it? (laughs) He's saying Jesus didn't have to do that with deity. He already had it. He was a clutching for it. That's what he's communicating here to these Pharisees, to these religious leaders. And friends, this is important. This is vital. I mean, we know this in our own communication. I mean, we're trying to get to know somebody. I encourage you, meet somebody before you leave today. For introverts, I know it's hard, but I think you can muster up the courage to meet someone new before you leave. And here is how the conversation will inevitably go at some point. Where are you from? Where are you from? What do you do and where you're from? That's kind of like our go-to. Why do we ask people where they're from? Does their geographical point of origin really tell us anything? Yeah, it does. (laughs) You're from New York? I know something about you. (laughs) Or in my case, you're from North Carolina? You can make some assumptions about me. And I get it. We shouldn't stereotype and all this kind of stuff. But the truth is, stereotypes exist for a reason. Where we come from tells people who we are, what we're really like. When Jesus answers the question as plainly as possible, hey, you want to know where I'm from? From God. How does that change your view of him? We're not just dealing with a great teacher. We're dealing with one who is none other than God, the only way that you can know him. This is not a survey question, friends, like it's based on your opinion, but it is a self-disclosure. It is a fact. It is confirmed by his miracles. And here is what I will say to any of you and pass this on to people that you know who have lower views of Jesus. We look at Jesus to learn about God since he is from him. Let me repeat that. You want to know about God? You want to know if you have a relationship with God? You look to Jesus to know about God because Jesus is from him. It is not the other way around. I love the way one person put it. People often look at Jesus and draw conclusions about him based on faulty ideas of God and the world. Like some people will look at Jesus and they're like, no, I don't think that that's really God because what I'm looking for is more of a political leader or what I'm looking for is more of a prosperity maker. They don't like the idea 
of God that Jesus gives. And basically, it doesn't work that way. You don't get to determine what God is like. Jesus tells you what God is like. Let me continue reading. He adds, but the Christian message insists that people must learn afresh of who God is, what the world is, and we who ourselves are by looking at Jesus. It's not, that is the right way around. And the challenge is often needed just as much inside the church as outside it. You want to know what God is like? You look to Jesus. Jesus is the one who is from God. And you can like it or you can loathe it. And that's exactly what happens next. Look at verse 30. So, therefore, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Some of the guys heard it. They picked up exactly what he was laying down. And like, it ain't happening. And so it says that they seek to arrest him, which is fascinating because it's already said that they were seeking to arrest him. It's already said that they were seeking to kill him. Uh, the only thing that I can assume at this point is that they have a renewed effort to like do a citizen's arrest or something. But it says, this is fascinating, and they couldn't touch him. They could no more, A.W. Pink said this, they could no more arrest Jesus than stop the sun from shining. It wasn't his time yet. He is absolutely invincible, but the expression, the sentiment is expressed. Nonetheless, they hate his guts. They want him to stop. They are trying to silence him. They're not trying to arrest him just so they can hang out with him in jail. They want him dead. The text has already said that. Some people absolutely loathe the idea of Christ being not just a Savior, but a sovereign. That's, that's what bothers us. Jesus coming and dying and liberating us so that we can do whatever we want and go f- float in heaven one day or whatever people think heaven's like. That's not a problem. But saying that Jesus is coming or has come not only to save but to rule as a Lord, as God, that is a problem. People hate his authority. It's like the, what I would call the classroom monitor conundrum. Do you remember that from elementary school where the teacher would give these like special jobs? Maybe it wasn't in your class, but I, I remember like always growing up, somebody could be the line leader. You could be like the chalk beater or something. I don't know what that name, but there was this one person that got the dust off the chalkboard. This was before we had smart boards. Then another one was the hall monitor And I don't know the rest of them. I can only think of those three. Oh, the classroom monitor. There's a hall monitor and a classroom monitor. Lord help you if you are the classroom monitor. Because you were just a normal student until the teacher puts you in charge of everybody else and you can get other people in trouble. It is a lose-lose. You either lose with the teacher or you lose with the class. And why is it that the other students hate so much the idea of one of their own being the classroom monitor? Because we don't want to be told what to do. We don't want to be turned in. And you know what the Pharisees feel like when Jesus is saying, I'm from God? It's like, oh, he's the monitor. He's in charge. He gets to turn us in. 
They thought they were the monitor. They thought that they got to turn people in. And now the tables have turned. He's saying, no, you're not from God. I am from God. I am the authority. And they hate it. And so will most people. Sounds like 50% of them, at least in the United States, and maybe one out of every three who claim to be a Christian. That may not be the only reason why they reject Jesus as God, but it may be part of the reason why they reject Jesus as God, as was the case here. I said like it or loathe it. They loathe it, but some like it. Look at verse 31. He actually says, yet many of his people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now, I can't be sure about the nature of these people's faith. We've seen over and over again in the book of John that some people just kind of believe in Jesus, and then he ultimately will reveal later on because they only believed in his miracles and they did not submit to his lordship that they weren't ultimately one of his. The text doesn't say. But I want you to know that just because they believe him on account of all the miraculous things that he had done doesn't mean that they weren't necessarily true believers. I mean, signs-based faith isn't as good as faith without signs, but it's better than nothing. And so it seems that there's a group of people here who have received Christ, who appreciate him, who actually are willing to submit to the idea that he is not only a great teacher, but is also God. And so the first point has been made. Jesus is God on account of his ultimate origin. He is from God. He is God from God. So, that's not all, though. He also clarifies another point of contention, of confusion. Not only does he correct this notion of his origin, but he also corrects the notion of his destination. Clarification number two, his inaccessible destination. His inaccessible destination. Now, Get this, friends. He's not only from the Father, but more opposition from the religious leaders leads him to also reveal that he is going back to the Father. That's what you're going to see here. And it's not only a matter of his ultimate origin, but also his destination. Now, I want you to to note uh, more drama in verse 32 because the guys are upset. I mean, the home crowd uh, is in a frenzy. And the way that you can know this is I want you to see uh, a couple names here in verse 32. Look in your Bible, uh, point out the word Pharisees, and then the other one that I want you to note is chief priests. Now, with that, Pharisees, chief priests, you're just thinking like, oh, great. This is just religious leaders in general, but you need to understand something. These guys don't like one another. They are political enemies. Think uh, Democrat-Republican. Think progressive conservative. It's kind of a funny thing, the way that Rome had it set up. History people, check in. Non-history people, you can check out for about 60 seconds. Rome had the executive power. They were in charge of enforcing. But, because they didn't really care that much about Israel, they were like, you guys can rule your own petty stuff, so we'll let you do kind of your own legislation and your own judicial. So they gave him this little thing, it was called the Sanhedrin. It's kind of like a mix between the Supreme Court and Congress, if we were thinking in American terms. And the ruling body at that particular time was the chief priests. They were the liberals. They were the progressives. 
They were the ones that were actually in charge, but guess who the popular vote would have gone to? The Pharisees, the more conservative ones. The point is, every once in a while, they had to get together and make a decision, kind of like happens in the United States, like every time we vote on something. It's cats and dogs. And yet here, they're on the same page. They get together and they do a quick vote. It doesn't even require that much discussion because Jesus is still in his teaching. They make their official decision and they come back all within the same span. I mean, could you imagine pulling off like an official vote in that short amount of time? Here's the thing that though they hate each other's guts, so they're crystal clear on, this guy's got to go. Look at the text again with that in mind. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, believing in him as one from God, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So they send their minions. Now, what's the difference between this and the previous? The other is just like an unofficial attempt, like, hey, we got to arrest this guy, and they just can't do it. Now they're like, okay, we're going to use whatever like mall security we've got here for the temple to arrest Jesus. And it really was mall security. They didn't have access to the Roman guard. All they had was the temple guard, which was just a bunch of Jewish guys who claimed to keep order in the temple. It's not that significant, but they could arrest Jesus. And if they could actually identify him as one who is causing uh, disorder or disruption, they could ultimately convince Rome to have him killed, even though they couldn't vote on that themselves. It will fail this time, but it will work six months later. So, Jesus knows what's going on, kind of like when I'm teaching this morning. I know it's a big group here. I don't know everything that's going on, but I can tell when stuff's going down. Not trying to scare you. (laughs) But like when people are moving around the lobby or when I see people get up really quick or like when I see children, like I'm not ignorant, nor is Jesus in that moment when he sees the religious people all go huddle up in a corner somewhere and now the police are now making their way to him, he's aware of what's going on. To quote my dad, he ain't no slow leak. He's got it. He's picking up what they're doing. And notice another one of those things that just makes the text come alive. It says, Jesus then said. The word then is therefore. In light of what he sees them doing, in light of the opposition that is headed his way, in light of the police force that has been released upon him, the hounds on their way, Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. This had to be so frustrating for them because here they are, like trying to arrest him in that very moment. And by the way, you don't find out to a few verses later how this works out. But he is telling them, you can't touch me. Man, how, how annoying is that? It's like, it's like those, those, those kids, you know, who, who actually like, provoke their brother and sister, then go run behind, you know, like the parent who didn't know what was going on and like are making faces at them. I mean, you know how that just makes you angry. I mean, Jesus is provoking them. I'm about to go. I'm only going to be here a little longer and you will never be able to get to where I am ultimately going. What is he doing here? He is predicting his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. 
They may hate his guts now. They may try to silence him, but ultimately he is untouchable because he is ultimately inaccessible to them. Over and over again throughout the book of John, chapter 3, chapter 6, you'll see it again in chapter 14 and 16. Jesus will say, I'm going back up to my Father. I'm going back up to my Father. You will not always have access to me. And so he did. When you read the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts, you see that Jesus actually did ascend into the presence of his Father. Human flesh was taken into the presence of God, his right hand, invested with glory. He was received by the Father. And the way one theologian put it is is beautiful. Jesus went from man's place to God's place. I think sometimes we think that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he was like hiding out in a cloud somewhere and he was still like physically present. Or that maybe he's in outer space somewhere. Like that's what that Russian cosmonaut said when he first got to space. He said, look, I'm up here and I don't see God. Like as if, you know, he's just behind Jupiter somewhere. I mean, like, I don't think you get the fact that, that Jesus came, and this, this will sound a little sci-fi for a moment, but I'm getting it from the Bible, not a comic book. Jesus came from a different realm. The created order is different than the heavenly order. <laughs> if sci-fi has any redeeming value, and that's a big if, but if it has any redeeming value whatsoever, it'd probably be how it expands our imaginations. And without referencing any particular movie or comic book, everyone gets the idea of a different realm or a different dimension. Or um, to quote from one of the most highest grossing movies ever, uh, a multiverse. We know of this one universe that we see, but there's another plane of existence. You know, Jesus came from that plane. He went back to that plane, and therefore no one can touch him. Now, here's, here's where things get, get, get rough. He's going to say, you will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I go, you cannot come. Ready for some pronoun action in the original? Where I myself go, you yourselves cannot come. He's emphasizing, I'm going one place, and you're not going there. And like for some of us, like this should shock us because Jesus is talking about being inaccessible. We want him to be accessible. We want to go with him. We want to go where he's going. But you need to get something, friends. Who is Jesus talking to? Is he talking to his followers? No. Is he talking to the believers, the new believers there? No. He's talking to the guys that are trying to arrest him. He's talking to the ones that have rejected him. And what he's saying is, I'm going to go somewhere that you guys in particular are never going to be able to follow. You will not enter into the presence of the one who sent me. You will not enjoy the presence of God. And that means something, friends, because now we find out that the opportunity to respond to God and Jesus is indeed a limited time event. I know that you've seen those commercials. They normally come on like somewhere between midnight and two o'clock if you ever have one of those sleepless nights. The infomercial that tells you if you call now, you have to act now. Otherwise, you're going to miss the offer. And you know what the crazy thing is? Two o'clock the next morning, they're going to be still offering the same thing. And because of American consumerism, we hear stuff like a limited time offer, and we're like, it's not really limited. I'll get another shot. And this is what's insane. Some of you treat Jesus that way. And yet what he says here is this is a limited time offer. 
There will come a point in time where you will seek me and you will not find me. You will, not be, you will never be able to come where I am. He's already presented himself. And yet for his believers, they would go to him. Listen to these comforting words from John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Here he is speaking to his followers. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. That's a different group of people. Yeah, nobody's ever going to make it into the divine realm on their own. It is, as the rich man would say in hell, there is an inseparable gulf between us, a gulf fixed. There's no way. And yet Jesus made a way. Thomas would ask the question, "Uh, Lord, uh, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, and this is the context for one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So what we have here is two different groups of people. One will not be able to access him and enjoy relationship with God. The other will. And here's what I would say to those of you who have yet to confess Jesus as Lord. Respond to him while there is time because it is limited. This isn't the only place where he says, but I will be inaccessible. I mean, just listen to some of these passages. Isaiah 55, 6. Isaiah says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Jesus here is is compelling his his opponents to come before it's too late. Paul said it this way, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. The author of Hebrews said it this way, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Friends, this is indeed Limited. The only way to enjoy the presence of God is through faith in his son. And he says, I will not hang around forever. And the guys are confused about this. They totally miss it. Look at verse 35. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am you cannot come? Once again, they think it's a matter of geography, but it's more than that. They think, oh, well, he's just going to leave here and he's going to go talk to the Jewish exiles who have been dispersed about, and then maybe he's going to minister to the Greeks. Ironically, he would through his church. But that's not what he was talking about at all. It wasn't a matter of of this earth. It was about the divine realm, acceptance with God, and that is a limited time off. So who is Jesus? Well, quote Family Feud, survey says, survey says he's a great teacher, but not God. Half of the people in the United States would disagree with what you just heard. One out of every three people who claim to be Christians would disagree with what you just heard. So the question is, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to help them? Well, my prayer would be that even using something as simple as 
John chapter 7, you would be able to point to his ultimate origin from God and his inaccessible destination to God. By the way, inaccessible to those who do not believe. But do you believe? And will you help others do the same? Friends, I want you to know that the diamond of the gospel has been entrusted to the church, not just its elders. This truth is ours. This is what we confess. I leave you with a very practical conclusion. I want to present a summary of who Jesus is as a test, like a small test, a way to close, of our understanding, a test of our devotion. And as as I read these carefully crafted, this carefully crafted summary of what the Bible teaches about Jesus, you have a couple ways that you can respond to this. If if it is unknown to you, if something that I say in the next uh, few moments doesn't make any sense at all, or you don't get it, or it just it goes right by you, you, you'll know. You need to talk to somebody before you leave today because this is the difference between heaven and hell. Eternal life is only through faith in Jesus. Not the Jesus you want him to be, but the Jesus he's revealed himself to be. So again, I'm making this really practical. If what I'm about to say is confusing to you, you don't get it at all, you need to talk to a member or a pastor or somebody. We'd love to help you in that way. But maybe what I am about to read is just unfamiliar to you or you're confused about uh, something that's being said. Hey, listen to this. We're all growing in Christ. We're all learning more of him. The Spirit is continuing to work in our hearts to make Jesus more and more clear. It's okay, but I would encourage you to avail yourself of more knowledge and understanding so that not only your own soul can thrive, but that of others as well. Even really practically, it just happened to work out this way. We're actually teaching a class on the doctrine of Jesus Christ for the next six weeks here on Wednesday nights. You could sign up for that, whether you're a member or not. We want you to be clear about Jesus. And then if you're saying, look, I'm, I'm down. I agree with all this. But rejoice. This is your Lord. This is your God. This is the one who made a way into the presence of God on your behalf by becoming human, taking on your sin, the wrath that you deserve for your rebellion, rising again, showing that all who believe in him will also experience that similar resurrection and ascension into the Father's presence. Rejoice. But here's the summary statement with which we conclude. This comes from uh, Ligonier, by the way, it was drafted by R.C. Sproul, and he's a good theologian, and uh, several others looked at this and thought it was a good summary of, as well of what the Scriptures teach. We confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, he became truly man, two natures and one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us. 
Crucified, dead, and buried, he rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. Amen.